Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. He can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. You want to start, Rob? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, so you recently watched uh, 13 tapes about why. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> it's something like that. It does use tapes, which is kind of odd. Which that was, yeah, that was right. a weird part. I only caught bits and pieces of the yeah, series. So I. 13 I Reasons Why. Everybody's probably like, has 13 reasons why, scratching their heads of why I would watch that. <laughs> but, because. Uh, well, you opened my eyes a little bit to it, which is the only reason I bring it back up. We were talking about it before the show. I, I caught bits and pieces when Alyssa and one of my daughters were, were watching. Sure. And from what I saw, it was, it had kind of like a. Um, it just seemed like a lot of drama and a lot of like petty stuff going on. Sure. I, didn't, I didn't catch the whole story. So, you know, you, uh, you watched the whole thing and you enjoyed it for reasons I didn't realize were like there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if enjoy is really the right word you can give it, but, uh, that, I guess you could say that <laughs> <laughs> cause it's just such a serious damn show. Uh, it honestly is. I mean, I guess I enjoyed it from the point of view that it has a great story, a uh, much better story than I thought it would, that it's actually well-made. It's well-directed. Um, there's some cool little techniques they do with mood and setting. Um, interesting storytelling, like, you know, the girl telling her story, so a lot of it's told in flashback. Right. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things in that way. So it's very aesthetically pleasing in that way. Well, and um, there was some 
some deeper social elements to it that, that were pretty daring for Netflix right, to portray. Right. Yeah, uh, if anybody doesn't know what this is, uh, it's a show about teen suicide. And I watched this thing, but because at first I thought, well, it's just this, this silly teenage show on Netflix because which, I, that's which is what, what I, I got out of. I was thinking, right. it's like, okay, it's my so-called life, but current, but they're listening to cassette tapes. Yeah, 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 which made no sense. <laughs> and uh, a good reference there, my so-called life. Thank you. Um, a 90s child. Yeah, yeah. I think, I don't, I don't remember watching that show at the time, but I was, I think I was a sophomore or junior when that show came out, I want to think. But, uh, but anyway, I watched it because I heard Rocky talking about it actually on his show really and he was talking about it because a lot of people were up in arms about it glorifying teen suicide and you know rocky's big in the anti-bullying stuff which is an element in 13 reasons why so i watched it because i thought well i think i'll give this a chance and started liking it and then you know um getting into it because it does have a good like kind of whodunit story kind of thing to it um, as these different things get revealed, but it is extremely serious, and there are some parts of it that are extremely hard to watch. I mean, extra- you have rape, you have suicide, and I'm going to tell you when they show the main character's suicide, it is brutal. Well, and yeah, Alyssa was it's hard. Alyssa was screening the episodes before letting our, yeah. our daughter watch them, and if there was one she couldn't watch, she would just kind of fill in the plot points. You know, and then let it go on to the next one because the there were a couple parts I caught that I was just like, yeah, and it's definitely not a show for teenagers, even though it has gotten huge amongst teenagers. Which yeah, is, I think why this debate has arisen. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem mm-hmm. is people have said that teenagers is- are going to like it, and of course you have this whole thing about whether they're you're going to have people out there that are going to emulate it, right? Um, but I, I tend to. You know, in in my libertarian type mindset, lean towards um, the parents being a little bit responsible there. Yeah, you know, you can't censor art in any form whatsoever, and you know, justify your, you know, you're not you're not keeping an eye on what your children are into or what they're watching or their social media behaviors or any of that. Right. Um, and I, I understand the kids get to a certain age when they're in their later teens where they're going to go out and they're going to do whatever they want anyways, but. Mm-hmm. At least try to help them keep it in context and know what they're doing. Yeah. It's... Not to get too preachy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's not... Honestly, I would say that anybody that is raising a teenager or is about to raise a teenager should watch it. It's not exactly, I think, a true... Um, depiction of what happens in high schools, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah, and it, I I can tell you from watching it, you know, I'm separated from high school by over twenty years now. Okay, and even myself watching it, I can sit there and say that was my high school to a T. You know, I, I mean, that was everything that happens in that. 
is anything that happened in my high school or anybody else's. And I think you would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the kind of thing where you have all these kids that are cream of the crop or the jocks or whatever that lorded over the school. Well, I went to a pretty small school. I mean, you yeah. couldn't be that picky about who you were friends with or you'd only be hanging out with three or four people. <laughs> right. Well, my high school was my high school was bigger, even though I didn't come from a very, very large town. Um, Chattanooga's not a very large place, and Udawa is even smaller. How many people did you graduate with? God, that's all, man. Uh, that's putting me on the spot. Maybe 500. Okay, I had 22 in my graduating okay. class. That is pretty small. Um, so, yeah, you have all these cliques that form. Um, I don't remember, I, don't, I can't remember really being picked on or anything. You know, I have my friends, and we just all kind of didn't care about all these kind of cliques. We had our own little thing going on, right? and that was it. Um but yeah, I mean, certain things that I remember, I mean, we definitely knew that you had these, uh, for lack of the better term, the jocks ruled over the school, right? That's what's depicted in 13 Reasons Why. That's part of the people that are tormenting this girl, making her into this slut that she's not. Okay, I don't want to give up way, give away too many things, but Boy, that's alert. part of it. Um, but... I can remember one thing that happened in my high school was you had these two jocks that were at a party and they left the party and they were drunk and they were high and they got onto one of the main strips in, uh, in Chattanooga. Uh, the one guy that was driving plows into this pregnant woman kills her Ooh. and his friend smashes through the windshield and dies instantly. And the guy driving that essentially killed two people, you know, by his actions of driving drunk. Right. Um, he was, I think he had, you know, broke his leg or something like that from what I remember. But I can remember, you know, there being this memorial and everybody was sad and you had the, 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 the jersey in the, in, in the hall and all these kind of things that... For the driver? For the, no, for the guy, the other guy that died. You oh. know, he was drunk himself. But there was really no concern for the pregnant woman that died. Well, essentially, he killed three people, right? If you yeah. want to get technical. And there was really no concern for, for that. It was all just this emphasis on this football player star that died tragically in this car accident. You know, and how do we deal with this? And uh, that was all there was. Okay. Um. So that was the culture at my high school. Even though at the time, the football team couldn't win a game to save their lives, <laughs> they, were still the most, they, they were still the most important part of the, uh, of the school. You know, right. Maybe like an elite secret society, like we're going to talk about with Nick Redfern tonight. See, oh. I like, a, see oh, how, that's like a nice how I segue. did that? That was nice. But there was an incident in my high school, uh, my old high school, Udawa High School, Go Owls, <laughs> that uh, happened only two years ago. Um, and this sent shockwaves. This made national news. Okay? My high school. I'm so proud. These basketball players went to Gatlinburg for a tournament. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they 
through hazing, one of the freshman basketball players they raped with a broomstick. Jesus. Okay. This came out maybe, I want to say, two weeks later. After the kid finally broke down and told his mom why he was hurt and how they went to the hospital, parents sued the school. People lost their jobs. Uh, yeah. So that's the kind of thing. And when I heard it, I thought to myself, yep, that's it. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that it would get that bad because that's how it was at that school. And that was the uh, that was the nature of it. My uh, my cousin, who's closer to your age, he's about six years younger than me. He went to that school and got into a fight defending another kid with a football player in his freshman year, and got all kinds of hell all throughout his years there. And the and the faculty had it. Some of the members of the administration, the faculty had it in for him. Okay, because the coaches, the administration, and the faculty—they're all in it with the football players together. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, and that's I, also something that's depicted in that show. I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll admit, even in my my small school, there was one teacher who, I believe, the reason I had to get my GED rather than getting my high school diploma, which is a story we're not going to get into right now, was along the same lines. You know, he was friends with my grandparents. He knew me all growing up, but I was not an athlete. I wasn't on any teams. And he just, for some reason, always seemed to have it out for me. He was like this macho, tough guy. Like, so I guess I did experience a little of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. And this is stuff that goes into the don't don't think it stops at the high school level because this goes into college level too. Why do you think? I mean, I don't think we've talked about this too much on the show, but Sandusky at Penn State, I'm pretty damn sure he was allowed to get to get away with the things that he did simply because, and this is raping children in the bathrooms, got caught by a fellow coach, and they told. Remember the story? Oh yeah, they told the, the dean. They told uh, was well, I can't remember the famous cult coach's name that had forty plus years of experience that you know basically went his name went down in disgrace because of this. But that would that had been ten years or ten maybe even longer than ten years before. I think it was nineteen ninety nine that that happened, and it was two thousand eleven that everything came out about Sandusky. Like this guy, I think there's a lot more going on there, but there is also this mentality that we got to protect our own. Okay. Well, and that's pretty damn heinous. It is. So this continues into college. This is not end at high school, this kind of stuff. Right. The other issue I think with the show is that people have been saying that it is a glorification of suicide. And we kind of just touched on this. Um, I can tell you the actual scene that happened when they actually show her kill herself is pretty brutal. It does not glorify anything. It is extremely painful and hard to watch. But you don't turn away because it's kind of like watching a train wreck, honestly. Um, 
I think, and we were we were talking a little bit off air about kind of like social commentary and television. Uh huh. And I think this is this kind of continues that tradition. Right. We're talking about you know how Netflix has this great opportunity where they can kind of throw things out there and be a little bit a little edgier than um, a lot of other you know networks would dare to be because they are you know they built this thing out themselves and they're starting to produce their own content for it and. I really appreciate that side of it, whether or not I like the series. And, right. I, mean, I didn't finish it, so I don't know <laughs> right, right. what that says. But, yeah, I, I think it's exciting to see what else they're going to be coming out with. Yeah, and they're coming out with a second season, apparently. And apparently what I've heard is that this is going to deal with a school shooting, which they kind of set up. A second and, season of what? Of 13 Reasons Why. Oh, really? Which I don't even know if it really needs a, third, a second season. I, maybe I think a, that maybe might a, be just too much, man. Maybe a spiritual honestly. successor. But yeah, I mean, is there going to be twenty six reasons why? Right. Is that what it's going to be? I mean, someone else is going to hand out a bunch of cassette tapes or like, yeah. What, what, what is yeah. the tie? Uh. You know, I yeah. There, there was uh, the name was too gimmicky to give it a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this that like the whole thirteen reasons why thing kind of hurt it in a way because they had to do thirteen episodes, uh-huh. and I think they kind of. Um, they kind of draw things out, you know, because there's this whole thing with the other kids that have heard the tapes. So basically the thing is she makes the tapes and all these people that she blames for contributing to her killing herself, okay? And finally the tape has been passed down to the pretty much the last person. And this is the person that you follow through the whole 13 episodes, right? Her friend, you know, Right. Uh, who's a, a boy. And so everybody gets these tapes. And so that's, that's the format. But I think that, you know, the, I think this, so I think it lags a little bit in, in many parts. Like you have all these kids that are conspiring because uh-huh. they've all heard the drama. tapes and it just goes on and on and on. And there's this lawsuit that her parents are doing with the school and that just goes on and on and on. And so there's a lot of stuff that just kind of lags in places. So like, I'm glad I didn't watch it in 13 full one, one sitting. Cause it definitely does kind of meander. Uh, but, you know, but, uh, so that's a criticism of it. And then just another thing too, you know, I, I the, I love it when you have these, uh, movies that are supposed to play, have teenagers in them and everybody, and most people look like they're 25, it was like James Spader and Pretty in Pink. I mean, he was obviously thirty. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> still a great movie. <laughs> so, so do you have that same effect in this? Like, the two main characters look fairly young, even though I think the actors themselves are maybe nineteen, twenty, and they're supposed to be fifteen. But there's some, some of them, and then they look like they're thirty. Man, it's just like okay, that 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 defies credulity a little bit. And so that's, that's one part of it. You know, there's some little criticisms about it, but to be fair, some actors out there just like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> take Elijah Woods. He still looks like he's 18. Mm-hmm. I mean, he can't, pl- he can't play a serious adult role. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I don't know if it's something that really glorifies suicide or not. Um, that is something that I, so far I haven't heard, of a cult of suicide suicides out there emulating it. I think that, I think that was just a fear that could happen 
because <laughs> well, they would I, say that this show did it and not whatever else was going on in their lives. Right. Well, just like the Judas Priest stuff. It would 80s. have to be like, yeah, exactly. It would. I mean, it would have to be like the the last straw to somebody who is already showing a bunch of signs of this. It's not going to some, you know, some middle of the road average teenager is not going to watch this and go out and be like, oh, okay, this, you know, I'm going to kill myself now. Like, yeah, and. Yeah, so I, I see what you're saying, and I, but I, I mean, from a parent's perspective, I see how like that fear is there, and it's a lot more mm-hmm. of a, a common thing, especially yeah, with younger you're a parents. Teens, you know, today, like you know, when we were young, most people knew somebody in their late teens. When we were in our late teens, that committed suicide or heard of or had a friend of a friend, sure. kind of thing. Sure, you know, but you never heard of somebody twelve or thirteen committing suicide back then. No, no, and. With the advent of social media, I think, which is the, the yes. real reason behind a lot of this new trend, like that's it's become a lot more popular, a lot more common. Back in our day, that wasn't around, <laughs> honey, and it really wasn't. No, it wasn't. Facebook. I mean, uh, I can well, even think about. I can even think about ten years ago that really wasn't even around I had, as much. I had ICQ. I think that was what it was called messaging service, instant messaging. When wow. I was when I was like sixteen. And so you could get on there and you could log into the server and you could do like a, like, you know, see who else was logged in to the local server and you could send them messages and like, Ooh, technology. Yeah. It was, is not, that what John Teeter went back to get from 1999? No, no. <laughs> he went, well, he went back to the seventies. Well, he went back to 1999 too. live with yeah. his family. Remember? Right. But not for technology. Yeah. Just, yeah. That, that was like a detour. You, for you, need to, you need to make a chart for that. Actually, it actually, uh, uh, well, this is our last show. Mike Mike Sauvey makes that like chart. You have to have a chart to figure it out. Yeah, uh, it's like a, the three D one though from Heroes. But speaking of, of social media, oh yeah, I remember that show. <laughs> speaking of social media and suicide, this happened here in our fine state. This is crazy. This happened, well, I mean, I think this show is going to be put up two weeks after we record this, but I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Okay. All right. It's from BuzzFeed. A Memphis man died after setting himself on fire while live streaming on Facebook and then running into a crowded bar late Saturday. The shocking video shows the man identified by police as Jared McLemore, 33, dousing himself in kerosene and then bursting into flames. He then runs off screen. The Memphis Police Department said McLemore was taken to Regional Medical Center where he later died from his injuries, according to WMCA. The video has since been taken off Facebook, and it was not immediately clear how long it had been online or how many times it was viewed. A Facebook spokesperson declined to answer questions about additional details, but provided a statement on the incident. We are deeply saddened by the loss of Jerry McLemore, a Facebook spokesperson said in a statement. We don't, we, didn't, we don't allow the promotion of self-injury or suicide on Facebook. We want people to have a safe experience on Facebook, and we work with organizations around the world to provide assistance for people in distress. Police are treating McLemore's death as a suicide, according to WMCA. The Memphis Police Department did not respond to requests for additional comment from BuzzFeed News. It was the most horrific thing I've ever seen, witness Kim Kohler told WMCA. She said she was inside Murphy's Bar in Midtown Memphis and had just finished playing a gig with her boyfriend, Jim Duckworth, when she saw McLemore run into the bar on fire. 
Duckworth told WMCA that he too saw Macklemore run into the crowded bar and that he was totally on fire, head to foot. Police said said a second man was taken to the hospital with injuries sustained when he tried to kick a lighter away from Macklemore. He was reported to recover. According to Kohler, Macklemore's ex-girlfriend, Alyssa Moore, had been working at Murphy's as a sound engineer Saturday night. Moore's older sister, Sarah Moore, told BuzzFeed News that her sister doesn't wish to comment, but that she's thankful to the support that she has been, have been offered to her. Yeah. That's so, insanity. Um, Let me add this real quick, though. Okay. The violent incident is the latest in a string of gruesome acts broadcast over Facebook's live video platform. In the last month alone, a Thai man broadcast himself killing his baby daughter. An Alabama man live-streamed his suicide, and a man in Cleveland uploaded a video of himself murdering a stranger. You remember that? That happened yeah. a few weeks ago when that guy killed the old man on, that was on Easter Sunday. And then they caught him because he went into McDonald's to get chicken nuggets. <clears throat> Okay, so here's what I think. I think that this kind of thing is going to continue to happen. Most people are not going to be unfortunate enough to be part of a social circle where this will pop up on their feed. And it's part of growing pains connected to new technology. And I think what I mean by all that is that people have done all of those kind of things thousands of times in the past. You know, hundreds of thousands of times in some cases. Although setting yourself on fire and running into a bar is kind of unique in many ways. It is. Okay, so maybe it's a little more dramatized than some past suicide events. Good Lord, can you imagine being in the bar, you're watching a band, and then just somebody just runs in there on fire? No, but I don't think Facebook Facebook has anything to apologize for for offering a live streaming service. This is the kind of thing that when it falls into, like, you know an animal like human beings' hands is going to happen. Like, there's right. a certain percentage of us out there that are just awful. Awful. Completely awful. And that's just how it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like technology is neutral, and it's the way that we choose to use it. Oh, absolutely. It's a totally a reflection of It's a nature. neutral tool, just like anything is. I mean, just yeah. like... You know, just just like the first time man picked up a bone, he could either use it to kill an animal for food or kill somebody else. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that. that's, you know, they, what that's depicted in 2001, A Space Odyssey, if you've ever seen it. Yeah, they're beating so, each other with bones. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the monkeys beating each other with bones. So, yeah, there were people on uh, the comments that I was reading about this, and they were talking about how we should ban Facebook Live. See, that's, but that's what something I, that's else what I was is just going to come. Yeah. yeah, something else is going to come up to replace it. Absolutely, live video streaming is going to happen. You can't struggle against that. Yeah, Facebook just happens to be in the right place to you know, be the one that's backing it, making it happen. Like, and that's another. Okay, this happens so often. Rob's getting worked like, up. I am. You're getting me all worked up now. Accountability. <laughs> Accountability. All right. Yeah. Who set the guy on fire? He did. He yeah, set himself yeah, yeah, on fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Facebook didn't set that guy on fire. Let's hold him accountable. Let's talk about how much of a dumbass he was, and nobody else should do this. You know? Right. That's yeah, all. I agree. I agree. I, I, it, it, it's, it is all about accountability. 
And um, speaking, I mean, speaking of which, you know, you the, there was this thing about this twelve-year-old girl talking about more about teens and younger suicide. She streamed her suicide not on Facebook Live, but on some other streaming service. So it's not just Facebook. It's going to no. happen. It's, it's not just that yeah. you have Facebook Live. This is going to happen regardless. People are going to do this kind of shit. Well, like we have Skype. Skype just doesn't store it on a server for all of your friends to see later. That's right. The only difference. Exactly. Hey, I'd like to use Facebook Live just to stream what we're doing now, like stream, stream an intro. You know, it has a use. It has a tool for people. And in, in 10 years... Like probably less than 10 years, Facebook and Google and everything else, they'll be able to recognize when something is a suicide video and block it. Yeah. <laughs> so we just need to wait for the AI to be a little further along and take care of us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's out there, though. I'm sure somebody's already got it out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, uh, wow. I, what a world we live in, man. I like, my, I like my social commentary with a bit of science fiction. Yeah, it's all good. Oh, good. That's that's in a, that's in a very well tradition, very good tradition. All right. Well, I think we've talked long enough, so we're going to bring in Nick Redfern. We actually have him coming on. Ooh. I'm actually really excited, and we're going to talk about elite secret societies awesome. that has nothing to do with your high school. It's just an extension of it. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, get, it's closer to college. But, yeah, it's much closer to college. You, you are exactly right. All right, guys. Well, uh, we will be back on the flip side, uh, and we'll be talking to Nick on Conspiratorial. All right, guys, we are here on Conspiranormal, and uh, we are just back from our really happy, plucky conversation about 13 Reasons Why, teen suicide, and self-emulation. Cheer up, everyone. Uh, yes, we need to talk about some uh, rainbows and unicorns and cookies and Rainbow Bright or something to really <laughs> detox on that one, but maybe Nick Redfern can help us with that. We're going to talk to Nick about his new book about secret societies, which is a more like an encyclopedia type of book. But uh, Nick, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. I believe this is the fourth time for you. Yeah, something like that, Adam. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it may actually really be the fifth because you were on our hundredth episode. But usually, when we well, don't do like, full yeah. interviews, I don't really count those. But it's kind of weird my my criteria. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just want to start off with like, what brought you to write a book about secret societies? Because this is a little different than some of mm-hmm. the other books that you've written about, as far as like in the area of UFOs or cryptozoology and those kind of things. So, what kind of brought you into writing a book about this? 
Well, the main reason was that the the publisher that um, published the book, Visible Ink Press, I'd done three previous books with them um, that were sort of more in tune with the things I, I typically write. I did the, the Bigfoot book for them, the zombie book, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and the monster book. And... Um, so those are sort of more in line with what I normally do. But the, the publisher, Roger, asked me, would I be interested in do, doing a book on secret societies, which I hadn't really covered before. But, you know, I, I sort of superficially knew various things about them, obviously. Um, but I, what I basically said was, well, you know, it's not my area, but I'll be willing to do it um, according to sort of various criteria. One being I didn't want to just do a book that covered all the same old secret societies that everybody knows about and just leave it at that. I said, you know, I, I, I was actually aware of a, a number of um, really weird secret societies in the UK already. So I basically had a conversation with them and said, well, look, if we're going to do this, let's include a lot of obscure ones, but also obscure ones which are very intriguing as well. It's got fascinating stories surrounding them. And they liked that idea. Now, of course, you know, you've got to do things one like the Illuminati and, you know, the Bohemian Club, Bohemian Grove, that kind of thing. But as I said, I wanted to expand a little bit outside of the, you know, the regular box, so to speak, and and go down some lesser known avenues. And I said, yeah. they like that idea. And uh, I said, you know, as long as you give me plenty of time to write it and research it so we can make sure, you know, it's all good and plenty of data... That's fine, you know. So that that was basically what we did and how it kind of came together, really. Yeah, because you don't just talk about kind of the typical stuff like Illuminati or Freemasons, even though that that material is in there. But you also pull yeah. up these like weird cults and these um, uh, the like uh, think tanks that are out there. Those type of yeah. those type of organizations. Uh, some of the just weirder almost fortean stuff that you talk about yeah. in there as well uh, that that you include so it's kind of like a well balanced thing i was going to get to this later but i am kind of curious uh why you included kind of like groups like the men in black cattle mutilations uh black eyed kids those kind of aspects into a book about secret societies do you see them as like kind of more of a that that they're like a secret society of the other side, so to speak? Well, I mean, one of the reasons why I included them is that there is that angle, you know, we, we assume most secret societies are ours, but could it be there are sort of secret groups that are working, you know, on the planet, but they're actually not ours, as bizarre as that might stra uh, sound, you know, sound strange. For example, um, you know, the Men in Black mystery, well... I included those in the book because if you look at the original stories and the ongoing stories of the Men in Black, they're very different to the movie equivalents. You know, the movies, everybody thinks of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, you know. Um, but if you speak to the witnesses, a good, the very, very vast majority of all of them say that they didn't actually seem human. They're sort of very pale, skinny, have these large eyes which they hide behind these wraparound glasses and everything about them is sort of non-human um but they have sort of this same criteria where they all wear the black suits the black fedoras and it is almost as if they're attached to some sort of almost like a supernatural order 
But one of the other reasons why I included some of these um, sort of more fourteen um, societies, if you like, is because very often you find that there is a crossover between secret societies and governments. Now, this sort of applies, I guess, more with a uh, perfect example. You mentioned the cattle mutilations. Now, right. you know, the on the one hand, there are the theories that cattle mutilations are done by extraterrestrials, then you have theories that it's the military checking for things like emerging viruses or biological attacks on the cattle herd by enemy nations, um, and then you have theories that relate to cults. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book is how, yes, there are some angles that push this whole thing down sort of a, a government kind of angle or the military with sightings of these so-called black helicopters in the area. But then on the other hand, a group surfaced in the early to mid-70s called the Sons of Satan. And this story came from various people incarcerated in jail at the time who claimed that they were linked to this group called the Sons of Satan, which was heavily funded and had a network of links all across the United States. And their entire sort of modus operandi, was killing and mutilating cows, cattle, um, as a means to essentially offer like a sacrificial um, paste, if you like, to gods and supernatural entities as a means to gain sort of power, influence, and strength, which are sort of the typical things that most people in secret hmm. societies look for. Right. So in other words, the reason I included these groups is because in some cases like with the cattle mutilation, the line is sort of blurred between, um, on the one hand, a secret society or a secret cult like the Sons of Satan, but then on the other hand, you can also make a case that there's a government angle to it. And in some cases, the two might work in tandem. You know, that's something that's happened on more than a few occasions. So sometimes, you know, the line is blurred between, as I said, between what is a secret society, what may be a government agency, and when they come together as well. Did uh, Michael Aquino have anything to do with the Sons of Satan? Not as far as I know, but I mean, you know, he's someone who has an interesting background, you know, in terms of his sort of, um, you know, religious beliefs and um, and also having, you know, a, a respectable position in government. And I think sometimes, you know, this... This tends to happen actually quite often because at the end of the day, we're all human. Just because somebody is in government doesn't necessarily mean their free time isn't, you know, a definitively alternative one. You know, that, that does happen. Uh, a perfect example of this would be back in the 1930s um, when you had Jack Parsons, right. the noted rocket scientist, um, basically the guy who, without whom there wouldn't have been the jet propulsion lab that still exists to this day in Pasadena. Um, now, Jack Parsons was a brilliant you know, rocket designer, rocket pioneer. He has a na uh, crater named after him on the surface of the moon. But he was also a deep follower of Aleister Crowley. And Crowley actually arranged for him <coughs> excuse me, to um, run the Pasadena um, lodge, if you like, of Crowley's organization. And, um, and Parson jumped at the chance at this. And behind the scenes, you know, the military knew all too well, because obviously they'd done background checks. They knew about Parsons' links to people like um, 
to um, Alistair Crowley, but also to people like L. Ron Hubbard, who went on to form Dianetics and then later Scientology. Um, and for the most part, the military kind of turned a blind eye to all this because they realized that for all of what they perceived as sort of his eccentric behavior, they also saw the fact that he was a brilliant rocket scientist and they didn't want to lose him to any foreign, potentially hostile nations. And so they they put up with it. And sometimes you've, that's a perfect example of how people who the government or the military might perceive as eccentric or slightly dangerous or even sinister, they're not adverse against working with them if that it, you know, it works for them. And that includes people like Crowley, um, who was also um, hired by British intelligence years earlier. So you people like Crowley, people like Parsons, who are brought into the fold because of their expertise. And as I said, you know, um, a blind eye is taken to whatever they might do after dark, you know, sort of sacrificial rites or trying to summon up supernatural entities or wild orgies or a bit of both. You know? That sounds like a good time, man. And, and, yeah, and by the way, <laughs> and by the not way, job at all. right, right. And by the way, Nick, uh, I wasn't going to, I really wasn't going to bring uh, old Mr. Crowley up on the show, but uh, it's only been like, I think one show that we haven't talked about Alistair Crowley. So, you know, he, he, he comes well, up at least like, once every two episodes. <laughs> well, I mean, he is an important part, <laughs> not necessarily of sort of worldwide secret societies, but certainly, yeah. you know, when when the First World War uh, was over, uh, we know that um, Crowley was sort of brought into a cl- semi-clandestine group in the UK called the Primrose League, and it was made up of a lot of powerful figures in um, the British government and people of influence and money and power. And they were basically sort of, um, you know, they were part of the the conservative um, government in the UK, which is the British equivalent of the Republicans. And he was brought on board to sort of um, spy on the the Labour side of things, which is the the Democrats over here. And um, he did a good job. And people in the intelligence world... um, Never forgot this, and certainly when the se- when the Second World War broke out, as bizarre as it sounds, he was actually contacted and consulted by British intelligence to see if there way there were ways in which, if all else failed, you know, military might didn't work. Was it possible that Crowley and his cohorts and different cults and societies could they use sort of like a supernatural power to try and uh, defeat the Nazis? And actually, several of these. Um, sort of um, incantations and um, cult-like activity and attempts to, you know, use occult powers to keep the the Germans at bay. This actually went ahead. It was a process known as the Cone of Power, where witches and warlocks were enlisted, essentially, at the behest of British intelligence and used their sort of psychic power and rituals to try and focus on mentally keeping the Nazis at bay. So, again, this is a perfect example of how secret cults and bizarre societies come together working with the highest levels of of the intelligence world. I think there's a certain amount of psychological warfare involved in that, too, maybe like an early form of it in a way. Because if you think about, um, you know, the men who stare at goats, I mean, that's just another form of that. 
essentially. And if you think about how that was later channeled into psychological warfare, I mean, you can definitely see that use of witchcraft, the occult, cults themselves, all is just a big psychological warfare that you're, that operation. Yeah, well, I mean, a perfect example of what you just suggested um, comes in um, one of the things I talk about uh, very early in the book, where uh, during the uh, Vietnam War, um, mm-hmm. the um, American troops would leave Ace of Spades cards um, around the, the bodies of the, kill, <coughs> the killed North Vietnamese because the North Vietnamese troops were deathly afraid of the Ace of Spades card and would see it as, you know, sort of a... Um, a precursor of even more death and disaster, and and to the point really where um, you know the the American troops realised that this was hey you know this we can actually really frighten the the North Vietnamese troops and they they fell for it and um, being highly sort of superstitious and so in many respects you find. Even the military, not just consulting these cults, but actually employing their same techniques, basically to try and intimidate and frighten the enemy psychologically. Um, you know, and you sometimes you can almost beat the enemy in that way, rather than just you know using bullets, missiles, or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing uh, the uh, Motorhead song running through my head right yeah, now. Yeah, me too. So- yeah. Funnily enough, I've actually got a beanie with uh, that on it, which actually says "Motorhead." <laughs> yeah, all, that was all part of uh, Operation Phoenix. Have you ever heard of the uh, what is it? The uh, oh god, the Screaming Ghost or whatever? Have you ever heard that aspect of Operation uh, Phoenix or the Wandering Soul? The Wandering Soul. Yeah, that was a. They actually had this recording that they made that was purported to be this lost. Viet Cong soldier that had been killed and he was saying he was um, separated from his family and he was a lost wandering soul and they would take this and they would play it on loudspeakers all across the jungle and it kind of gave it this effect of being a disembodied spirit and Mm. that was to trick the uh, Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese soldiers into laying down their arms because they were a lot of them were really superstitious. So well, yeah, I mean, it's that creepy again stuff. Demonstrates, sorry, it's 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 a creepy recording if you ever hear it. Oh yeah, I'll have to check that out. But uh, I mean, that kind of thing happens a lot. And of course, the people who are planning these sort of strategic psychological warfare programs, of course, they have to actually learn the history of all this. So you know, it's entirely possible that they would consult, you know, experts in possibly in secret societies even um, to understand the history legends and try and figure out, you know, how we can best use them. And if the military is not fully conversant with the stories, they may then recruit, you know, sort of occultists who can brief them, you know, in a meeting in the Pentagon or whatever, to tell them, well, this is what you need to do and this is the history, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I don't want to belabor these too much, um, kind of your, your basics of the Freemasons, the Illuminati, um, Bohemian Grove, these guys, like the, I guess that's the big three, right? Yeah, everybody uh, kind of knows about them. You know, it's kind of like this big paradox of, uh, it's the, the world's most well-known secret society. Right. Was there anything <laughs> new, were there any new revelations to you that you found out about any of those? 
Not really. I mean, the thing is, particularly with, like, Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Club, they've kind of, even though they are real groups, they've kind of taken on lives of their own in the sense that they've become, you know, they've become bigger than life, so to speak. And, you know, the conspiracy theories get embroidered upon and expanded upon to an incredible rate, to the point where even conspiracy theorists, you know, cannot agree on where the truth ends and then the more sensational rumor mill begins, you know. And it's because, it is simply because they've developed such mystique. Right. One that was interesting, you don't hear very much about this one, uh, the the Carbonari. Let's talk a little bit about them. All right, yeah. I mean, this this is sort of a perfect, you know, example of this this angle of actually wanting to sort of do something where people would say, um, "Huh," you know, and um, and this this really is a sort of a perfect um, example. Really, it was um, like a, a this sort of gets to the heart of what I mentioned before, where you have a crossover between um, the worlds of secret societies and government. And the Carbonari, uh, which was created um, in, uh, well, roughly in the early part of the 19th century, round about 1817, 1820, there there are still certain um, questions on the exact date. But um, it was a group that very much sort of based itself upon the original... um, sort of image, if you like, or goals of the Freemasons, of Freemasonry. And um, now they were sort of very much political in nature. And what they wanted to do was bring around either a republic or a, a constitutional monarchy. And they were sort of very proactive in their means. They were a secret society of people who had like minds. But, you know, their ways of changing government and changing society was that... <laughs> excuse me, was actually to sort of assassinate and and shoot and kill their enemies or even their potential enemies, you know, who might become a problem. But um, their headquarters was based in Rome. Now, by the early 1820s, they'd actually got close to three quarters of a million uh, members. And um, one of their big phrases, (coughs) excuse me, was that they could enlighten the world... (coughs) Excuse me, I'm just going to have to take a glass of water. It's all good. They, um, one of their sort of favorite terms was that they could enlighten the, old, the whole world with what they called holy fire, which, of course, ties in with Illuminism, which ties in with the Illuminati. And um, so they were very sort of a, a proactive group, and they had a lot of secret rituals, um, code words, um, signals, um, you know, just ways of communicating that if you weren't in the group, you would have no um, understanding what was going on. And a lot of their teachings and beliefs were also driven by um, ancient pagan religions as well. And they they kind of embroidered this sort of ancient paganism um, with their political beliefs, coupled with the classic kind of rituals undertaken by secret societies and uh, <clears throat> and essentially became, you know, sort of a, a, a massive, very powerful and influential organization. Um, but after roughly the mid-1830s, their sort of influence and power 
kind of began to sort of melt down and collapse. And eventually, um, they were sort of, uh, those people who wanted to continue were sort of, you know, um, almost kind of uh, became absorbed, if you like, by other organizations. And the Carbonari just essentially ended up in sort of a, a realm of just, you know, well, what were they, you know, who were they? And they right. were, you know, eventually they were lost, you know, they were just lost to obscurity. I guess they were kind of Freemasonic in nature because, I mean, a lot of, in that time period, were Freemasonic. They had a lot of different influences. Was uh, was Mazzini, was he a member of the Carbonari at one point? Um, he may well have been. I know he certainly was linked with some of the people. I know that much, yes. Okay, okay. The um, I kind of divided things into different categories as I was kind of reading the book. Uh, kind of took the whole, restructured the whole alphabetical theme. Um, <laughs> what I really, I wanted to get to the influence of think tanks and who some of these guys are. And I included the Bilderbergers into, the th- into think tanks because that's essentially really what they are even yeah. though they're kind of another one of these uh, big boogeymen of conspiracy theorists. But let's talk a little bit about the Bilderbergers and who they are and whether you think that they're as important as or as scary as they're usually portrayed. Well, again, you know, this is kind of like with Bohemian Grove, you know, the Bohemian Club. It depends very much on who you ask, you know, in terms of who they are and what they actually do. Now, the name... Uh, actually comes from the Hotel de Bilderberg in uh, a small Dutch town of Oosterbeek. And their origins go back to the mid-1950s. And ever since then, they've had these sort of huge behind-closed-doors meetings, essentially involving sort of powerful figures from uh, primarily Western Europe and the United States. So we're talking about people in the political arena um, but also people in the realms of like banking, economics, um, big business, um, you know, in other words, the, the big sort of world players, if you like, things like that. Um, now, there's no doubt that the, you know, the Bilderberger group um, essentially states that this is their, the goal they have in mind is to sort of mold society and the future and the economy and, you know, the world, etc., into essentially the world they want it to be because they feel they're doing the right thing. Now, at the very other end of the um, spectrum, so to speak, you have the fact that a lot of the people in the Bilderberg group um, you know, are linked to, linked legitimately to secret societies and in some cases what we would call cult-type groups and even the, you know, the Bohemian Club. There are a lot of people in the Bilderberg group who are in the... Um, Bohemian Club. And this has given rise to the fact that although, technically speaking, the Bilderberg Group is not a secret society, a lot of its members are, and there's a belief that you combine those two together and what you have is something that goes beyond a think tank and becomes an all-powerful group that is trying to manipulate the planet and the people into becoming something very different to what we are right now. So there's no doubt that what they do is to try and, you know, influence the future based on their goals. The big question is, to what extent does that have a sinister aspect to it and what extent is it 
perceived as a sinister aspect. Right. What are the goals? Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it's always. That, that, oh, go ahead. No, I'll just go on. Cross words. It. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just one of those. It just seems to me like, is it a big deal or is it not? You know, well, what, that's what a big question? Yeah. Yeah. What What bothers me, I think, about Bilderberg, Bohemian Groves, any any of the think tanks, honestly, is are they the ones that are actually making policy? Because it's one thing to say, okay, Bohemian Grove, yeah, they, you know, worship this gigantic owl and they have this mock human sacrifice every year. But then that's one aspect of it. But then I don't know, more concerning to me is, is like in a democracy, technically, we're supposed to be the ones setting policy, like the people are. But it seems like the think tanks are the ones that are actually setting the policy of what's going to happen. At least yeah, heavily influencing it, might, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. You know, I mean, the big question is, who is it that's setting policy? I mean, sometimes these think tanks may well be sort of brought in, you know, brought involved or hired or contracted to, you know, do some sort of study of the next 20 years in the field of, um, let's say, you know, that the amount of oil that's left, something along those lines, yep. you know, they're brought in and to figure out how much Middle Eastern oil's left, you know, how much is in this part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then they may be asked to say, you know, to look into, well, how can the United States adapt to that? And so then they might come up with different theories and scenarios as to how best utilize, um, you know, the, the available oil. And that may then, you know, some of those theories might be controversial ones. Others may be more down to earth. But then you begin to wonder, well, you know, is the group that actually hired the think tank, do they have their own agenda? And are they looking to see how they can fulfill that agenda by getting a think tank to actually do the work for them? And the think tank just hands the work over, not really knowing what the group's going to do with the information. You see that that can happen sometimes, that a think tank can be very useful in terms of getting some really good data but the people in the think tank may actually not be cleared, have a need to know mm -hmm. as to why the group is asking them for it. You know, mm -hmm. so that think tank sometimes, as ironic as it sounds, are actually outside of the box. Right. Well, let's talk about the Council of Foreign Relations, and then there's the Trilateral Commission, which kind of springs from that as well. Who those well, who yeah. these guys are? Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you, you know, if we start with the, you know, the Council of Foreign Relations, that again is another one that a lot of people, even if they're not involved um, in the, you know, the issue of secret societies, they've kind of heard of them. You know what I mean? And um, but they're not unlike, really, you know, the Bilderberg Group in sure. the sense that they are comprised of, you know, major figures within, you know, within governments, within world politics big business people, um, in the education community, and also, particularly with the Council for National Policy, uh, religion as well. Mm -hmm. And they essentially have meetings and forums to essentially to try and figure out how to solve growing problems and how to prevent them from getting worse. And that can mean anything from, you know, threats to the nation, um, overpopulation, the economy, um, even things like the nation's health, things like that. Um, 
But some people have suggested that, um, you know, things, um, you know, have sort of gone more of a, a controlling way, you know what I mean, in terms of just um, coming up with ideas and scenarios to help the nation or the world. It's more along the lines of do it our way or no way, you know, that kind of thing. But um, but its origins actually, you know, go back to the its original origins uh, go back to the early 1920s. And um, in terms of its membership, I mean, that's in the thousands. Um, they're also not just, as I said, for people from government, but also the intelligence community. And you know, many presidents were in the in the CFR, like for example. Um, uh, Gerald Ford, Jimmy, Card, uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter, John F. Kennedy, Eisenhower, Herbert Hoover, and um, but they've been in sort of more recent years within, certainly within um, conspiracy fields, being sort of tied to you know the stories of the New World Order and that um, the Council on Foreign Relations is going to have some sort of major role to play in sort of transforming society and um you know given the fact that they do have people you know working in various um disciplines all across you know society then you can understand why some uh, conspiracy theorists do see the CFR as being kind of a sinister group rather than you know whereas a lot of other people might think they're just well they're just kind of like a think tank that but on a much larger scale. And again, it very much depends on who you ask, somebody's level of paranoia, or somebody else's ability to put strands and threads together um, where somebody may not have done that, and then that creates a different picture. Right. And the Council of National Policy was fairly interesting because this is one that comes from a very right-wing religious point of view. Well, yeah. I mean, the, in some respects, the Council for National Policy, in terms of membership, is actually not dissimilar. Again, it's sort of business people, politics, government, um, education. But again, you're right. I mean, we're talking about um, you know religion. And one of the reasons why the Council for National Policy is so tied um, to religion is because it was actually created... Um, just after the dawning of the 1980s by Tim LaHaye. Right. Uh, Tim yeah. LaHaye is the author of the the Left Behind books, you know, which are definitively um, sort of religious, Armageddon-based, end of the world, well, not end of the world, but kind of, you know, sort of end times um, kind of books. And, um, you know, there are numerous uh, books in the series now. So, in other words, you know, you have this connection between the Council for National Policy, um, uh, created by Tim uh, Tim LaHaye, and then you have, you know, um, a powerful um, religious aspect to it as well because of, of Tim LaHaye's belief system. So, you know, um, and then, you know, some people have suggested that there's this sort of, um, I mean, Public Eye, for example, I'm quoting them here, not me, uh, they actually said um, the Council for National Policy... <clears throat> is a virtual who's who of the hard right. And um, so, in other words, again, you have this situation where, on the one hand, you have people perceiving it as a benevolent organization, um, you know, doing work for the future of the nation, etc. Then, on the other hand, you have people who view it 
as as I said, as public eye described it, as um, as a who's who of the hard right. So again, this this is one of the issues when you're looking at various bodies. It's a lot of it. It's kind of like the UFO subject or Bigfoot or anything. You know, there are interpretations and belief systems. You know, same with life after death and things like this. It, it's all dependent on how you interpret the data and how much data there is and how much is rumor and suggestion. You know, and um, and this is why I think so many people find secret societies fascinating because they are couched in intrigue, but also that can cause problems when you're trying to um, ascertain what's actually going on with them, you know. Right. Does that scare you in any way to think that these guys that have all this focus on end times prophecy, that uh, they have so much influence? Because it, sh- it well, scares uh, the shit out of me. It terrifies me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, my view on, you know, I don't care what anybody's religious beliefs are, but yeah. I wish people would save them for what they are, which is their belief systems. You know, for me, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, but I would never tell my kids if I did. And if you do this or if you don't do that, you're going to burn in hell because even the concept of hell is a belief system. You know, if you think about it, literally, there's no proof of a place called hell. Now, I can't prove there is a place or there isn't, but I can say for sure we don't have proof of it. Um, And so I think sometimes, you know, religion is used as a tool of control and manipulation, and it does that by fear. You know, you can look in all religions or many religions, and you will find if you do this, you'll go to heaven or to, you know, whatever realm that this particular religion believes in. But if you don't do this, you're going to burn in hell and suffer, you know, forever. Well, that's that's just, that's basically screwing with people's minds. Um, and I think, like I said, I don't have an issue with people having religious belief systems at all. I, I, the two things I, you know, the one thing I just mentioned, tell people it's a belief system, because if you're honest, that's what it is. And the other angle is I don't like people knocking on the door trying to tell me to read this or read that. You know, I, I, I have no time for that. If I want to find out about anything, I can do it. I don't need somebody knocking on the door right. to tell me how to do it. You know? <laughs> that kind of like makes me want to break a few jaws when they turn up, you know what I mean? <laughs> Does that happen to you often? What, do I break jaws when they come rock? I no, I mean, they, just, I they, like just, they just knock on the door, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, I get it like three or four times a year, which isn't a lot. But, you yeah. know, the fact that I remember them is kind of like you're kind of stewing on it for days sometimes. <laughs> Leave me alone, you know. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm right. kind of like that in various aspects of life. You know, it's kind of like if somebody cuts me up on the highway, I'll be stewing about the guy for like, two days later or something. Well, know? I'm going to tell you, <laughs> hell may be a real place to some people, maybe an abstract place to others, but, you know, if we're not careful when we have all these extreme beliefs, we can make hell on earth, so... Well, that's right, and I think, you know, religion is being manipulated more and more today. Um, you know, in today's world, it's become a very strange world where, you know, it's like, um, if you're of a di- different religion then you're a potential danger. Now, yes, there are, but there are potential dangerous people in every religion, you know. Um, but it's almost as if there's a manipulation of 
this going on to an extreme degree where you need to be careful, you know, if your next door neighbor's got dark skin and a beard, you know, that's, yeah. that, that's nonsense. You know, I'm not right. saying we don't have to be careful and use common sense. Of course we do. But, you know, sort of, you know, kind of presenting everybody of one particular group or whatever into that category, you can actually go down a very dangerous path where people accept it as just the norm. And then it becomes, well, what's the next norm going to be? What's the next one going to be after that, you know? Yeah, not to get on too much of a high horse here, but, you know, I look at things that are going on over there in Europe, and I think about, you know, the kind of false choice that uh, is given over there, and it seems like there's this choice. It's very much made this choice. There's a choice between either you got these guys, people like ISIS on one side, and then you have, you know, the really right-wing fascists on the other and like it's like that's the only two choices we have i mean that's that's pretty crappy if that's true you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean we need to get back to i think one of the things the world's lost in recent years is like common sense yeah in the sense in the sense that you know it's kind of like um well i mean just 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 regular common sense i mean you see all the stuff just recently on aircraft with people being thrown off for just ridiculous reasons <laughs> yeah, 20, yeah. 20, 20, 25 years ago the flight attendants and the passenger you know they would have just said oh, okay let's just all calm it down you know we'll we'll get you there don't worry and just because you got out your seat 30 seconds after they said don't get up again you know we're going to go in on our descent you know you could say to the person you'd be the flight attendant say look you know we did tell you but please don't do it again but the way it's like now, it's like the passengers are the enemy. You know what I mean? Sure. It, I mean that's how it, that's how it comes across. It's like you're almost the enemy, yeah. um, and it's almost as well as if they just want to find an excuse sometimes to to make life miserable for you on the flight. You know. Yeah, and I think the problem too is you have so much government interference, especially after nine eleven, which you could say is necessary, but at the same time, it causes a lot of problems for a lot of people. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, we do need to be vigilant. And yeah. I mean, I don't mind going through, you know, airport security and taking my shoes off. And if I've got, you know, necklace on, taking that off. And, you know, if they want to search my bag, I don't mind that. I'd rather be safe than sorry. You know what I mean? But there's also, you know, the other angle of let's not just get so caught up in, you know, the issue of, like I said, where common sense goes out the window. I mean... You know, the the issue of, I mean, I know this gets away from secret societies, but, you know, this issue of planes uh, overbooking and causing problems, well, you know, just don't overbook, you know, <laughs> so you're going to lose a few <laughs> seats or whatever. Big deal. You're making, yeah. you're pulling in millions upon tens of or hundreds of millions a year. You I know, mean, you're worried just about, you know, a few overbooking issues. That's a conspiracy in and of itself, if you really think about it. So we <laughs> could tie that back in just as easily. <laughs> I mean, it, it honestly is because they're really just trying to make as much money as they can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can, you know, it's just the world. Don't get me wrong. You know, there are legitimate threats over the, out there everywhere. Yeah. Dangerous threats that we need to be vigilant about. But if you give up all your freedoms in the name of freedom. You haven't got freedom. Right, exactly, know. exactly. You, That's... We've got, I mean, it's like when people say, I'm never going to fly again. 
because of terrorism. Well, you've given in to the legitimate terrorists, the real terrorists. Yeah. If you say, I'm not going to get on a plane, well, they've already won, you know. Right, exactly. Before we move off of this subject about the, ta- the think tanks, uh, the Fabian Society. Now, this is one that um, I did not know was actually probably still around. I thought they were <laughs> long gone because I remember, you know, I think H.G. Uh, Wells was a Fabian uh, socialist and uh, George Bernard Shaw, I want to say, was one as well. Um, well, first of all, what does that mean, Fabian socialist? What is that? Well, it's basically the Fabian Society uh, was actually created in the latter part of the 19th century in the mid 1800s, uh, excuse me, the mid 1880s. And it's essentially um, a group. It wasn't sort of like a, a political party itself, but what it was was a group that would sort of nurture and encourage that sort of political ideologies and, and public policy on the left. So we'll be talking about over here, you know, the, the, the Democrats. And um, it actually grew um, very big, very quickly. You know, it had thousands of members. And, um, and I, well, I say had, you know, I mean, it, like you said, it still is actually going. But um, although it go, it's still, you know, still up and running, so to speak. But um, it's, it's one of these groups that kind of exists, shall we say, um, you know, in the background to a degree. Yes, it exists. Yes, it does work. But you still have people say, huh, who are they? <laughs> you know, um, but, um, you know, it does have sort of a, a wide link with various bodies in Europe, for example, um, like the European Commission and the Foundation for European Progressive Studies and um, also programs funded by the European Parliament, uh, which uh, actually works for sort of like a socialist Europe. And so they're heavily involved with them. But, you know, nobody sort of perceives them as a group on the level of, you know, uh, like the Council for Foreign Relations or or whatever. You know, they're sort of very much um, sort of not sort of a group that doesn't achieve a great deal or have to do a lot of work, but it's more sort of like a low key group, you know. Right. And they're called Fabian because they're named after a Roman general whose strategy was to wait the enemy out. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think that is a coincidence. You know, you've got the symbology of, you know, the might of the Roman army, the Roman Empire, you know, that sort of image of suits of armor and swords and shields, you know. And then on the other hand, the image, you know, or the Fabian connection, I should say, you know, it's actually explaining their sort of ideology. You know, we'll do what we're doing and then we'll be the one that comes out on top, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's the. It's like the the opposite of of communism, where it has to be right now. You know, the takeover is right now. Yeah, this is more. We, like we can wait a while. Yeah, right. It's like a subtle approach they take. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about some weird stuff. And I I, I did this category under weird cults. Okay. And awesome. uh, I I love the weird stuff. <laughs> so does Rob. Yes. Uh, this is one that stands out to me which is Friends of Hecate. Because if you know our uh, Walter Bosley, he writes about Hecate a lot. Yeah. And this is something that's come up on the show mm-hmm. a lot in other contexts as well. I think there's some connections of Hecate to like Santa Muerte, you know, the, the Mexican saint, Saint yeah. Death. I think there's some connections of that too. But uh, this one was fascinating that you talk about in the book. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this is actually one that goes back quite a way in the UK. Uh, I mean, to the extent that, you know, back in the 1980s when I was still a teenager, you know, I heard about it then. You know, I was interested in reading about I was reading about the paranormal then, you know, books and magazines. And the story had surfaced then, but it actually goes back um, to the 1970s, uh, this group called the Friends of Hecate. Now, it all revolves around an area of woodland in West Sussex, England. It's called Clapham Wood. And what happened was that in the early 1970s, a lot of strange deaths occurred within the woods, Um, deaths of animals, particularly dogs, but also uh, people as well, and the list included, the list included uh, police officers, um, sort of significant people in the local community. Um, a number of women were found killed in the woods, and there were some connections with some of these people. And then a man named the Reverend Harry Snelling, a sort of prominent religious figure in the area, went missing. And his body was actually found three years later in the woods, you know, and all that time he'd never been found despite extensive police uh, searches. That sounds like now, David Politis stuff. Yeah, it actually does yeah, a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. but... Um, and then there was, uh, I mean, one of the things I should say was that when um, Harry Snelling, this this priest, vanished, it was actually on the night of Halloween 1978. Ah. So, you know, and Halloween itself is steeped in sort of ancient lore and um, secret groups and so on. But um, Just as an aside, me, have you ever seen the third Halloween movie? Yes, I have, yeah. Which it's it's kind of like this, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But uh, for people who don't know, Hecate was basically so the ancient uh, goddess of, for example, the moon, uh, witchcraft, magic, the night, necromancy. And um, one of the theories is that the, the group itself, uh, the Friends of Hecate, was, like so many secret societies, was made up of powerful and influential people in the British aristocracy, royal family, uh, big business, banking, you know, the typical ones. But they weren't sort of trying to alter the planet. They were sort of far more localized, and their goals were sort of, within the UK, were power, money, influence, sex, you know, the things that most secret societies seem to sort of gravitate to. Um, but there are still weird stories coming out of Clapham Wood to this day, and people claim to have met some of these members of the Friends of Hecate. Um, and so, you know, in other words, it's a very, very strange and unsettling kind of group. You know, the this image of this powerful group of occultists willing to sort of kill and sacrifice people at will, you know, for their major goals. And, yeah. and they're sort of, you know, acting these things out in sort of the green and pleasant woods of fields of England, you know? It kind well, of sounds like something straight out of these, like, 1960s Hammer Horror movies. Right, right, Peter exactly. Cushing and Christopher Lee. You know? Yeah, yeah, or as Halloween 3, like I mentioned, um, yeah. or which, even, is, which is a really strange a better, movie. better example would be something like The Wicker Man, you know, something right, along those lines. Right, right, yeah. yeah, the original Wicker Man, not the Nick Cage. Um, oh, yeah, that's not, all. Not, terrible. Not film. the one that, not, not the bees, not the bees uh, one. Uh, 
But two things to, to, two things to point out. Um, there were, in this case, the Clapham Woods case, there were a lot of things with dogs. There were dogs yeah. that were found killed and one dog that ran into the woods and was later found paralyzed. And yeah. Hecate's, one of her familiars, in fact, her main familiar, she's also associated with owls, but her main familiar it, are dogs. So yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. And then, second of all, in Walter Bosley's Empire of the Will series, he talks about this cult that he thinks were Hecate worshippers in Southern California. Mm. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, um, one of the interests, there's actually uh, only really in the UK really been one book written solely about this. And it's kind of a hard book to get. Sometimes it costs a lot of money if you're buying it online, but if you look around, you, you can find it for cheaper prices. It's called The the Demonic Connection by Toy Newton, T-O-Y-N-E. And, and that's a really good book, uh, which sort of tells the, the whole story of the, the Friends of Hecate in the UK, at least. But it does sort of talk about ties with like international black magic and things mm-hmm. like that and, and overseas groups. So people want to know, you know, I, I include, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of pages in the book on that, but there is actually, like I said, this book, The Demonic Connection, which is a full-length study of the group, its history, and also its links to um, some older groups as well, you know, going back centuries. Right, and there's also connection with her with um, Kali, the Indian goddess. That's right, And yeah. uh, the you know, of course, they're, they're worshippers of the Thuggy, which if you've ever seen Temple of Doom, you know what we're talking about. Yep. Um, and which they were, you know, ramp- we get the word thug, because they were just these ramp, these roaming band of murderers that had a devotion to Kali. So yeah, that's an interesting the connection. In the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got the thuggy in the book as well. Yeah, uh, I just uh, so many connections with Hecate. It's it's kind of it's kind of disturbing, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, cult of the Moon Beast. Mm. I guess we got well, some yeah. werewolf action going on here. Well. <laughs> I guess kind of in a way, um, but this is a this is probably one of the strangest ones in the book. Now, over the years, when I used to live in the UK and I was you know I was doing a lot of research out there, um, you know, I, like I said before, I didn't just sort of uh, you know write about UFOs, and that's still in the case. You know, I've written about cryptozoology and strange creatures, and sometimes, particularly the field of um, cryptozoology does cross over to sort of the world of the supernatural and and even, as bizarre as it sounds, cults. And this is one of them, a cult of the moon beast. Now, this story came to me by a guy named Rob Lee. And Rob was someone who I met, well, actually a good few years now because I've, I've been over here 17 years. So it's probably 18 or 19 years ago when I met him, something like that. Nick, just to not interrupt, but this, that really sounds like an eighties, like a, like an eighties album, like a heavy metal album title. Cold of the Moon Beast. Moon Beast. Yeah, yeah, it does actually. Like a <laughs> b- bunch of weird-looking guys in spandex and flying, <laughs> flying bees, you know what I mean? <laughs> One of them's holding a sword with lightning striking it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those bands that we thank goodness are no longer around. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to derail you. Right? <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> You're right, it actually does. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, I mean, this guy, Rob Lee, told me how his, um, his father um, ran this particular farm, and they woke up one morning and found that a number of sheep had been killed and sort of laid out in ritualistic fashion 
in the in the field and the local police were brought in and basically said well yeah it's clearly not wild animals wild dogs or anything like that but you know we've sort of checked around we can't find any evidence of a group etc etc sorry but that's the end of it you know and um but he but rob kind of got by his own admission uh quite obsessed with this and decided to sort of dig into it further now bear in mind this was sort of pre i mean although he told me sort of like the late 90s when this actually happened was like uh pre-internet we're talking um late 80s through the early 90s when he was looking into this so there was no real internet you know to uh to investigate but he sort of dug as deep as he could into other reports around the country of sort of animal mutilations, not like the cattle mutilation in the US, but in the US, but where it looks like there was some sort of ritualistic activity going on. And he said to me that digging into this more and more, eventually he caught the attention of this group known as the the cult of the moon beast and now by his own admission that was the name the name that he gave the group he was never able to um actually get the name of the group itself but mm. he said that it was made you know very clear to them either back off or we'll make you back off and you know you may not be doing anything else ever after we make you back off but um it was a very weird story where, according to Rob, the story that he found from some of the members of the group who'd left the group because they were disturbed by the way things were going, was that supposedly they would perform supernatural rituals to essentially open equally supernatural gateways uh, to what we call like multi-dimensions, if you like, and to summon up supernatural creatures, which is the best way to describe them. And... The idea was that these creatures would literally be summoned up um, as a means to sort of assassinate someone that somebody else might might want gone, as bizarre as it might sound. Um, in other words, you know, you, you force or cause one of these supernatural creatures to manifest in somebody's bedroom and scare the life out of them and maybe, you know, kill them with a fatal heart attack or just plague them and menace them with repeated visits in their, you know, these entities, these creatures, which would sort of invade their dreams. So, in other words, it was like using supernatural magic as a means to destabilize people with these bizarre images of these sort of hideous monsters and whatever. You got to wonder how much that might be going on and whether or not this is like a, I mean, like a tool well, that people use to to assassinate people, you know. <laughs> well, I hate I mean, to keep bringing up movies example. because there was a movie called Dreamscape that was just like this. <laughs> oh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Hey, right. Uh, I mean, a good example of this is. I mean, I've been on a lot of expeditions to Puerto Rico looking for the chupacabra. Now, one of the theories I've heard time and again from the locals is that like this sort of deep, <clears throat> deep belief that. The chupacabra is something that has been um, summoned up um, by not the not. There's a lot of um, people in in Puerto Rico who uh, follow uh, Santeria, um, but there are rumours on Puerto Rico of sort of like an offshoot type group, which is responsible for sort of literally summoning up the chupacabras from some other realm of existence, and that now 
that they're in our in our realm of existence, they're quite happy staying there. You know, it's kind of like it's easy to open the door, but not so easy to put it back again or close it again. And so I, I actually hear a lot of these stories. I mean, I think the most uh, publicised examples in the UK of these sort of sacrificial events involving sheep occurred round sort of 2005, 2006 and seven in the English county of Devon, uh, which is a very ancient county with a lot of mystery attached to it. And on numerous occasions, farmers woke up again, like with Rob Lee's dad, and found their sheep laid out in sort of, um, you know, like a five-pointed star and <laughs> organs removed and ritually placed on the ground. And so it, it kind of suggests this group in some, in some form is still around. I'm going to mark that where you just said that for the next um, opening theme song. <laughs> that's that's a, that is a great sound clip right there. Sheep in what the form of a pentagram. <laughs> uh, well, cult of the peacock, another weird one. Mm. Well, again, this is one I was able to investigate personally, um, and it actually relates around to uh, the subject of uh, crop circles. Um, and again, coming from England, you know, back in the 90s when the crop circle mania was not just taking off, but arguably was at its height. You know, you had people like Colin Andrews and Pat Delgado, some of the early famous crop circle investigators, really at the height of their work. And um, But this particular case involves um, a crop circle that was found in the summer of 2006 in the county of Staffordshire, which ironically is where I grew up. Hmm. And... Um, and this crop circle was found uh, next to an ancient uh, castle called Chartley Castle, which goes back centuries, and uh, I mean literally centuries and centuries. And it's pretty much in ruins now, but it, you know, it's there's still enough left where you can walk around and have kind of like a, you know, a cool look into the the distant past. Now, as it, as another coincidence, not only was Staffordshire the county that I, I spent you know my teenage to early twenty years in. Um, I was actually back in the UK for three months in that month, but the, the but the crop circle honestly did not have anything to do with me. But uh, <laughs> but it was in the local newspapers, and I was like, well, wow, you know, um, I've got to get over there and see this because it was only about twenty five miles drive from where I was staying at my dad's while I was over visiting the UK for a while because I was doing a bunch of lectures and whatever, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be kind of cool to just based back in the UK for a couple of months and hang out with a bunch of friends and, you know, eat a lot of fish and chips and drink a lot of beer, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was, a, you know, that was, that was the other side of it. But I went out to the, um, to the circle and what I found were a number of peacock feathers um, laid out in sort of, again, like a five-pointed star, not just within the formation, but also on the fringes of the field by the edges of the road as well. And you can actually find a, pe a picture of me um, actually holding one of those peacock feathers at the edge of the road by the field online. Um, if you Google Nick Redfern plus peacock, you'll, you'll and then go to Google Images, you'll find it, I'm sure. But um, but anyway, the, the peacock itself has a, an interesting uh, history. I mean, the emblem of the peacock's tail is what's known as the, the evil eye. And, um, right. and the, the evil eye sort of goes back to, you know, ancient Egypt and Osiris. And, um, you know, the idea that the peacock is this sort of revered, but also almost supernatural entity in its same right, in, in its own right, I should say. Now... 
One of the people who I interviewed about all this um, was a woman named um, Jane Adams, and she was a Wiccan, you know, she followed the, the Wiccan religion. And she told me how that there was a particular group, which actually sounded not unlike um, Rob Lee's Cult of the Moon Beast, but she said that they were using the, peacock, the peacock's so-called evil eye in what she also described as black ceremonies. And their sort of modus operandi was very similar again, sort of psychic assassinations by kind of invoking or creating sort of tulpa thought form type hideous creatures which then would sort of plague the targeted individual you know be kind of like a you know a nightly state of of nightmares about terrible creatures you know and try and get people plunged into states of nervous breakdown or even suicide and so in other words it, it did actually sound similar but um certainly Jane Adams admitted she didn't know anything about this, you know, these killings back in the 80s, but she said she knew that this group was certainly around from the early 90s to, you know, 90 to 2006 when this event occurred, and they may still be around now. But again, I mean, this cult of the peacock is another example of how you can have uh, what is probably like a very localized and low-key group, but nevertheless performing, you know, some very sinister operations. Hmm. Uh, out of curiosity, um, are any of these groups, is any of this kind of weird activity like this associated with Rindlesham? Um, well, well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, fully aware of that but i mean what i can tell you you know when people think of rendlesham forest they think of the famous ufo landing in december 1980 sure. but a lot of people don't realize how much other weirdness there is within um rendlesham forest i mean yes. i know for example that there are rumors of sort of witch cults in the woods and the area definitely has a a legend going back centuries um of a Bigfoot-type creature. Locally, it's known as the Shug Monkey, S-H-U-G. And Shug <laughs> is like a derivation of an old English word, scucker, which means demon. So it's like demon monkey. Oh, and nice. Also been, yeah, and there have also been a lot of reports of like ghostly black dogs with glowing red eyes, kind of like the ones uh -huh. that inspired Arthur Conan Doyle to write the Hound of the Baskervilles novel. He actually took that from these existing stories uh, or legends. And there's also a lot of reports of huge black cats roaming around, which clearly, you know, there shouldn't be anything like black jaguars or whatever, you know, running around the UK. But a lot of those reports come from Rendlesham Forest. So this has given rise to the idea that the forest itself may have sort of a, a paranormal aspect to it, you know, almost like a portal where multiple weird things come through. And I even heard a weird story once of a group that tried to summon up like a, a giant-sized thought form slash tulpa of a spider. And then supposedly, like a couple of weeks later, somebody was walking through the woods and claimed to have seen this almost like spectral five-foot-wide spider scuttling through the woods. So, Why would you want yeah. to do that? Why would <laughs> that, like, come, I just like, hey, guys, let's conjure up a five-foot giant spider. Yeah, and I mean... I guess, you know, it's like the old adage, they did it because they can, you know. <laughs> we can do it, so let's do it. And uh, But, you know, I actually have a deep interest in things like tulpas and thought right, forms. Right. I think, I don't pretend to know how it works, but I actually think 
it does work that if you focus your mind on something, you can kind of create a semblance of it. And then the problem, of course, is that these things become tenacious of life and they yeah. don't want to give up the creation that you you know, that you've given to them, and then they turn the tables on you. And it's, so it's other, very difficult to sort of deconstruct um, a tulpa when you've already constructed it. I think possibly, too, that now in the age of the Internet that tulpas are being created possibly by the altogether consciousness of the planet. <laughs> I mean, well, the yeah, human I mean, consciousness of the planet. today... Um, which is actually something I'm talking... I have a book on this subject coming out early next year. I would put yes. something like the Slender Man in that category. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know for sure that the Slender Man was absolutely created for the benefit of the internet, you know. But so many people became fascinated and still are. It has an entire, you know, subculture of followers all around the planet who write fictional stories, who claim now to be having real encounters... And and I think that's what's happened, is that this intense belief in the Slender Man as something that can be contacted and, you know, you can communicate with it and interact with it, that it's it's kind of brought to life a tulpa that's, in essence, it's like the internet has given birth to it in some respects. It's sort of strode mm-hmm. out the confines of the internet into the real world. Right, I think... Which, which begs another question. Is the internet assisting it by being possibly self-aware, as some people think it's starting to become, you know? Yeah, I think the black-eyed kids are that as well. I think that that's a... Yeah. I yeah. think that that's a, well, some kind of thought form or some kind of entity that's taking on that form, reflecting reflecting to us what we think we want mm. to see. Well, uh, also, you could place the bla- the uh, men in black in that category. And one of the things yes. about the men in black and the black-eyed children is that they don't need, none of them seem fully self-aware. They do, it's like they're playing, it's like a computer program playing over mm-hmm. and over where the black-eyed children turn up and they, they have like just several phrases they use. We need food. We're lost. Can we come in? Can we use the phone? Can we read? And yeah, and and you know when they people question them or they don't know what to do, and it's like the Men in Black, they they're almost working to a program, and when you stand up against them, it's like they don't know what to do. It's like you kind of <laughs> put a glitch in the matrix, which you may literally almost have done, you know. Short circuit them, yeah. Yeah. The the next topic is kind of miscellaneous weirdness, and this is also stuff that's included in the book. Um, one of that's really fascinated me, and I need to get a guy on that's that's uh, done a documentary on this, but is the Montauk Project, not necessarily the Philadelphia Experiment, but the Montauk Project. And well, yeah, this, I mean, this one's fascinating. Yeah, well, this all revolves around the Naval Air Station. It's, well, it's actually called the Naval Air Station Montauk, um, which is located on Long Island. But the, the Camp Hero radar uh, facility, as it later became, you know, it's now closed down. Um, but there are long-standing rumors suggesting that deep below the base itself, um, there were these sort of bizarre experiments going on in everything from time travel to actually trying to create tulpas. And one of the long-standing stories is that they created a Bigfoot-type creature that got wildly out of control. Um now, the reason why I included Montauk is because a lot of it is kind of driven by 
things like time travel, UFOs, government conspiracies, but also, you know, there are rumors of sort of ritualistic activity going on to try and achieve, um, you know, these particular uh, aims and goals. I mean, the creation of this um, tulpa-like Bigfoot is a perfect example where, allegedly, of course, what I'm going to say now, you know, allegedly, is that the some of the people on the group... Um, taught themselves or were taught to get their minds into sort of like a classic altered state, almost like a shamanic state where you could sort of open your mind to other realms of existence and kind of call forth the imagery of one of these creatures, which would then actually take on some sort of semblance in the real world. And, and as we've seen, with like the cult of the moon beast and the cult of the peacock. That's actually not dissimilar you know, creating these kind of entities to perform a specific task is not dissimilar to the people at Montauk who were far more scientifically driven actually creating this Bigfoot-type creature that then got wildly out of control. But, uh, but yeah, you, you, when you mentioned at the beginning, you know, um, this does sort of tie in with the, the legends of the Philadelphia experiment and... Um, right. You know, vanishing warships or time-traveling warships or disintegrating ships, depending on whose version of events you think is more likely. But um, but there are so many weird things attached to Montauk that sort of, you know, also cross the world of, of secret societies and um, rituals. Um, and even things like, you know, strange animals, corpses found in the vicinity. Um you know, of of the facility itself, which just sort of adds to the legend and, and the mystique surrounding it. Are you talking about that thing that washed up on the beach? Yeah, which I actually don't think is anything really out of the ordinary, but yeah. the very fact that it turned up at Montauk, you know, is, is actually kind of ironic. It's almost like, um, it's like the trickster phenomenon almost, you know, something plays with you to such an extent that, um, you know, you begin to think, well, you know, is this really all going on or was it just beyond surreal you know <laughs> i have to wonder if the if there was a relationship to mk ultra with Mont- with montauk or some kind of ongoing program because you have these guys like al belick um i can't remember some of the other guys name but i have to look them up now but they always came up with these really outrageous and just crazy stories and I always kind of dismissed these guys, but then I kind of thought about it and said, well, maybe there was some kind of project going on there, and those guys were just subjects. Well, that's not impossible. I mean, if you look at the, some of the early MK Ultra, not just MK Ultra, but you know, some of the other early mind manipulation and mind control situations, where you know people's brains were sort of radically altered, um, you know, to the extent where. You know, some of the early psychedelics, you know, tower tests, I should say, in psychedelics demonstrated to intelligence agencies all around the world that were looking into this as to how, you know, you could really alter the human mind where people would see things that simply were not there or at least not there in our reality, you know. Um, And it's only kind of like a, a stone's throw away before you can then control the mind and possibly subliminally alter it or manipulate it. I mean, a classic example of when you talk about 
whether the people at Montauk could actually have been sort of mind-manipulated and genuinely believed they saw the things they remember seeing, but maybe they didn't. I mean, a good example is how there's sort of a significant number of people in ufology who've suggested over the years or suspected that some alien abduction events could actually have been um, sort of staged events, you know, using mind-altering technologies. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's the case, that sort of begs the question, is it possible that some aspects of the alien abduction phenomenon actually have nothing to do with aliens, but could they be sort of sophisticated psychological operations designed to see precisely how how extensively the human mind can be altered. I mean, you think about it. If you can think, if you can make people think they're seeing aliens, you could pretty much make them think anything, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that's what it potentially comes down to. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some of these early um, UFO events may well have been staged. Uh, and there are, you know, there are indications of some early cases suspiciously being staged, you know, and um, it would not surprise me, number one, to see how people react in, you know, strange and unexplained situations, but also to see, you know, well, if we can manipulate this person walking home in the woods, maybe we can do exactly the same with the enemy on the battlefield. So I think, you know, it's not a case of fabricating paranormal events for the sake of it. It's to see how it could possibly be used in a military perspective as well. Right, like kind of like turning on some kind of psychological warfare onto the American people yeah. as an experiment. Yeah. I've also wondered about that because, like, guys like Al Bielik, Andrew Basiago, you know, like you can kind of think, well, maybe they're just making this stuff up or they're crazy or, but then you think about, well, maybe they just had, they actually thought they did these things, but it was just something that was put into their minds. Yeah. And of course the other, the big question, of course, which is more likely that they time traveled back and forth and did all this or right. somebody was screwing with them. You know, <laughs> the, the most likely scenario of the two is that this was manipulation, you know, but, um, but then, of course, on the other hand, there are people who are going to say, no, you know, they've read every book on Montauk and they're absolutely sure. And that's, uh -huh. You know, that's their right to make that statement. Um, but again, I think, you know, it's like any aspect of the paranormal. We need to be sort of open-minded and not get caught up in, you know, Fox Mulder's I want to believe situation, <laughs> you know. I agree, I agree. I just want to know how the Loch Ness Monster fits in with all this. <laughs> oh, well, that's actually probably my... Um, favorite story in the book because you know I mean I don't know if you know this but my interest in the paranormal was actually driven by when I was about six years old my mum and dad took me on a week's holiday to Scotland and we spent a day at Loch Ness and my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness monster and that's what sort of kicked me off on it all um, but yeah this is a weird story it goes back to 1968 um, and a guy named Ted Holliday. Ted Holliday was the author of a number of really good books, and the one I would recommend to most people is The Goblin Universe, which sort of right. covers a, mm -hmm. a lot of ground covered like people like John Keel, you know, the idea of seeing all various separate paranormal phenomena is actually all interlinked, you know. Um, but Ted Holliday, every, every year, he had a full-time job, but every year we'd take two or three weeks' holiday, 
and go to Scotland and um, and spend time at Loch Ness looking for the for the for the Nessies. And as an aside, there are a lot of indications that they could be something paranormal. And there's the fact that Alistair Crowley had a, ho- a house at Loch Ness called Beleskin House, which actually burned down a couple of years ago, uh, where he performed all sorts of weird rituals. So but that, that's sort of getting slightly off the topic. But in 1968, um, three American tourists were out at Loch Ness. They actually weren't looking for Nessie, although they probably had one eye on the lock, you know. Uh, but they they were actually interested in, in Crowley, and so they went walking around his house, which actually, although the house, I said, burned down, right next to it was an old cemetery, which has a lot of uh, weird stories attached to it. Now, the the cemetery itself, when they were walking around this particular day in 68, they found this um, carefully folded tapestry. When they opened it up, it got bigger and bigger. It was you know, a sizable one. And it had these um, emblems, which had been sewn on very intricately, um, of dragons and serpents. And uh, some of the writing was in actually written in Turkish. And um, so they got a, somebody who finally found someone or uh, who could um, decipher all this and reinterpret it. And Ted Holliday, uh, as I said, you know, because he was at Loch Ness so uh, long, he got to hear these rumours that this strange thing had been found, this tapestry with these serpents and dragon-like images on it. And so he asked if he could see it. And they said, well, yeah, sure, you know, show it to anybody. And... um, so he looked at it, and the more he dug into it, and it, the writing was deciphered, it turned out that um, this, as I said, it was written in Turkish, but the more they dug into it, they found evidence, and Ted Holliday was one of the primary people, they found evidence of this clandestine uh, dragon-worshipping cult uh, in the area and the surroundings of Loch Ness. And it was a group that essentially um, was... Was prayed to, if you like, or was devoted to this ancient Babylonian uh, sea goddess named Tiamat. And she was like a very violent, dangerous, marauding sea goddess that sort of demanded, you know, respect and worship. And that's exactly what this group did. And supposedly, again, for, you know, the usual goals, money, influence, power, sex, um, the rumor is, and granted it is a rumor, that a number of people in the near vicinity and some in the further vicinity vanished and the rumour is that they were sacrificed in the woods to this Babylonian sea goddess Tiamat. Now the local police actually got involved in this and while they did conclude that this sort of snake worshipping or um, serpent worshipping group did exist they never found any evidence to support the idea that there had been sacrifices and they kind of concluded that this was just due to you know, sort of Chinese whispers and, um, you know, people getting overexcited and, and tales being told. But Ted Holliday did claim to have found evidence of the existence of, group, of the group and claimed that um, anybody who got close to it was basically warned, you know, warned severely to leave it alone and don't don't mess with us, you know. So, uh, so it was a very strange situation to find at all places, Loch Ness, you know, the existence of this dragon-worshipping cult that performed rituals and rites in the woods of Loch Ness, of all places, and um, and supposedly linked with human sacrifice and, and an extensive police investigation as well. Um, 
Wow. It's like everything goes back to Aleister Crowley, I think. Like Always. everything. Well, that, that is interesting. <laughs> you know, he popped up, he popped up here, there. You know, he, like I said, he popped up at Loch Ness. Um, right. Do so, so, don't I some mean, people but, think he conjured the Loch Ness monster? Isn't that a school well, of thought? Well, it is. But I mean, but there were a lot of sightings before he was there. Now, some people do think that because sightings were sort of re-energized and increased in the early part of the 20th century, people think that he may have actually kind of reignited or recharged the presence of these supernatural entities. But, uh, but yeah, he, he does kind of pop up, you know, here, there, and everywhere, really. <laughs> I mean, another example, you know, is, is LAM, L-A-M, this sort of right. um, mm-hmm. strange supernatural entity that he conjured up that, that looks... The black eyes aside, he looks just like a, a typical proto-gray alien, you know. Um, but again, that was not a case of Crowley sort of seeing it, you know, as he's going home late at night, you know, a close encounter. It was summoned up, you know, going performing this extensive, complex ritual, and then Lamb manifests, you know. So you could arguably tie him to everything from Lamb to Loch Ness to his connections with uh, Jack Parsons, you know, British intelligence uh, and Nessie. You know, James he, Bond, he, Ian, Filmin, Ian yeah. Fleming. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. We, get, we need to find a Aleister Crowley Bigfoot connection. <laughs> There's got to be one. Maybe yeah, it's probably the, like one of those... Um, what is it? Six steps to Kevin Bacon. Maybe through the demon monkey or something. Well, Nick, uh, we're, we're going to close this segment out. I want to thank you for coming on, but tell people where they can find this book and your other books as well. Um, well, all my books are available on Amazon. Just type in Nick Redfern or about 60% of the books you can get off the shelves in Barnes and Noble as well. And, um, I have a blog which I update most dates, uh, days called World of Whatever. So if you just Google Nick Redfern World of Whatever, or the address is Nick Redfern 14, which is Nick Redfern, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, Nick Redfern 14.blogspot.com, or Nick Redfern UFO at Twitter, or just scroll through Facebook and you can find me there as well. I'm like a bad rash, I'm everywhere. <laughs> Excellent, but we're glad well, we're glad to have you. Nick, stay on the line for us. We're gonna close okay. out this section of Conspiracy Normal and we'll be right back. Rob, bring us back in. All right, everybody. Uh, we just had an amazing interview with our good friend, Nick Redfern. That's right. And um, we also spent a little time afterwards with, uh, with him and our other good friend, Greg Bishop. Yes. Yes, we did. Um, we did an interview about some, some of the aspects of Nick's book uh, that that he did way back called Body Snatchers in the Desert. And now he has a new book about Roswell coming out. And we're going to talk to him in Roswell about that. So we're going to do a fuller interview, but we did little kind of uh, Roswell theme jam session with Nick and with Greg Bishop. 
So if you want to hear that, you have to go to Patreon and tell everybody how they can access Patreon there, Rob Arino. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> ooh, I missed the Rob Arino. <laughs> haven't been called that in a while, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> Patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got a lot of bonus content and you know, forums and communicate you know, little discussions we can do there. And uh if you want to sign up for that, just go check it out. And we've got some wallpapers we've put up there for different tiers and t shirts and and all that. It's just a way you can contribute and we can kind of give you a little extra for contributing to the show. Absolutely. And I just want to say uh, my stepson Felipe is here. He's visiting uh, from the Navy from all the way from Japan. Um, welcome. Thank say hello. You. Hi, everyone. Yeah, he he was, uh, when I first started this thing, this guy was like, what were you like? Well, 2012, so you're like, what, 14? I was 14, just started yeah. high school. I think you were like eighth grade yeah, when eighth I started Conspiracy Normal, and now you're like in Japan, serving the country in the Navy, learning how to kill a man in three different moves. <laughs> from I Marines. have the Marines for that. The Marines That's right. teach me. Do you want to say what ship you're on or anything, or do a shout out to the Navy? Yeah, I'd like to give a great shout out for the Navy and my fellow sailors and all the Marines all the army and appreciate the efforts of teamwork that we have, uh, the brotherhood that we also have. And also like to thank Adam, Robert, Alyssa, everyone here. Uh, they've been a big inspiration for me. Uh, definitely helped me grow as a person. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. thank you for being here, man. It's important that you were here. You sat through the interview and Hung out with Alyssa a little uh, bit. As much as so. I could, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, thank you so much. Next time, we have Randolph Benson coming on. He is the director of a new documentary called The Searchers, which is about um, some old-time um, JFK assassination researchers. Uh, Jeff Worcester was the person that um, turned me on to this. So oh. we're going to have him on to talk about it, and I'll get to see that um, Hopefully, Rob and I will go, both get to see that uh, documentary before it drops. I don't think it's quite out yet, but uh, we can see it through some the magic of time travel. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much, and we will be back in another week on Conspiranormal. By the way, Luke isn't here.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.